Welcome to God is Open. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the book of Matthew with particular focus on Jesus's views about God. What did Jesus think about God within the book of Matthew? What did the author of Matthew think about God? What did other side characters in the text think about God? And we'll figure out if Jesus is an open theist. Remember the view that we are contradicting, the view that we are countering when we're reading if open theism is in the Bible, is the classical idea about God. In the classical idea about God, God is pure simplicity. God cannot change. God does not have parts. God does not have relationships. There is no relationality in him. He can't be related to things because relationships cause cause parts, cause change, and change causes decay. Change means God is not God. God is pure actuality. He can't have potential to be or do anything other than what is eternally set. He's living outside of space and time in this eternal now and uh, perfectly simple, perfectly a say, pure actuality. So we'll take a look at Jesus. We'll take a look at other characters in the text. Did they think that God had potential to do new things? Did, did they think that God had uh, discursive reasoning? God listens to a prayer. He evaluates the prayer. In response to a prayer, God is discursively thinking about things. If that's the case, they are open theists. If God can do new things. If God has visual omniscience. If God knows because God sees. As opposed to the classical idea that God's knowledge is ungenerated within himself from time eternal and uh, <laughs> indistinguishable from his being, and not from sources outside of himself. That's the classical idea. If Jesus, for example, thinks that God knows because God sees, then Jesus is an open theist and rejects classical theism. So we're going to be paying a particular attention to the things that Jesus says about God, which is it's kind of interesting in the Gospels. The whole Bible, of course, is about God, but Jesus is not converting non-Yahweh worshipers. He's, he's actually reaching out to people who already believe in God. His message is more a moral reformation. He wants them to get right, to get in a good position with God, to, to be made morally whole in preparation for this coming apocalyptic event. And in that sense, he doesn't quite teach a lot about God per se, but more about how to prepare yourself for the coming apocalyptic kingdom. So when we're talking about uh, Jesus and his views about God, a lot of times we're going to have to try to look into his mindset as he's talking about God. Did he accept this classical model where God is pure actuality, has ungenerated knowledge from time eternal, perfectly simple, or if he thinks that God is relational, God can change, God can do new things, God has discursive thoughts, God knows because God sees. We're going to have to look at his statements to see what frame of mind he is in, who Jesus is. So what I have pulled up here is Bible.org. This is a great resource. Uh, they, they got a lot of useful information. Just an outline, an overview of Matthew. And we're just going to be going over event by event and then pulling out the events and looking in detail in the ones that give us more useful information. Of course, in chapter one, there is the birth of Jesus. You have... The Magi coming in chapter 2. Remember, this is the only gospel with the Magi. This has uh, the killing of the children by Herod, also the only gospel with this event. We have in chapter 3 our first uh, indication of 
open theistic themes. This is the ministry of John the Baptist and a famous passage that we've covered multiple times. John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, is out preaching in the wilderness and the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, they come to him and a lot of them are under the impression that God must save Israelites because for the sheer fact that they are Israel, they are of the blood of Abraham. And he talks to them and he says, no, your, your security should not be in God's promises to Abraham because God is smarter than you. Although you think that if God killed all the Jews, he wouldn't have a way of fulfilling his promise. Guess what? God has options. God, God's not going to be subject to what you think is his limitations for fulfilling his promises. He says this, but when he saw many of the, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, that's not very nice, who warned you to flee of the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. God can work contingency plans based on changing events. John the Baptist is an open theist. This, of course, uh, goes along with apocalyptic themes. This talks about the axe is laying, uh, laying waste to the root of the tree, and, and those who uh, don't bear good fruit are going to be burned up. This is a reoccurring motif in not only John the Baptist's ministry, but in Jesus's as well. This coming apocalyptic event where the angels are the reapers. They're going to be gathering up the wicked and putting them down and then blessing the righteous. So these, this is the apocalyptic hope that God is going to re return to earth, a God or, or a delegate or the Son of God, as Jesus states over and over, is going to return to earth and restore justice on earth. There's going to be an apocalyptic event in which the kingdom of earth is established. There's a restored earth. So in Jesus's eschatology. It's not, oh, we're all going to escape to heaven, escape this earth and live forever in heaven with harps on the clouds, anything like that. God is going to reform the earth. We're going to live forever with God in the new kingdom. Scrolling down to the last half of uh, chapter three, this is the baptism of Jesus. An interesting thing happens while Jesus is being baptized. There's suddenly a voice and the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember Augustine in his confession said that this event could not have happened. God can't speak. God doesn't have a voice. This has to be a predestined creature in time that's carrying out an eternal will. Because if God could speak, if God could form one word and then another, that's discursive. That, that, that's a sequence of events. That's change. That's not being timeless. Therefore, in Augustine's mind, this could not play out as it's written. God could literally not speak because speaking implies change. Uh, speaking implies being, quote unquote, time bound. And so Matthew 317 if this is to be taken on face value that god is speaking here then this is open theism and this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased in calvinism in augustinianism god can't receive anything to himself god can't gain value from outside himself so god being pleased um, pleasure is also an emotion and in calvinism augustinianism God is impassable. He can't have 
uh, emotions. He, he's eternally at his greatest value. And so th- this is a nonsense statement in which God is gaining satisfaction from Jesus, from any source, from any source. Uh, God is eternally the same in all respects. And uh, it's a meaningless statement if Calvinism, Augustinianism was true. Matthew 3.17. Turning to Matthew 4, we got the temptation of Jesus. In the middle of it, now Jesus begins his ministry. This is where he says, as I've said before, he started to preach his gospel, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is in Matthew 4.17. This is a repeated theme, a repeated motif. Watch what goes on uh, next here. This is Matthew 4.18. This is, this is a good verse to look at to see how grammar works, just how to read. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So does the fact that they're fishermen force them to throw the net? Right, like uh, they have this title fisherman, which now they're metaphysically forced to run over to the water and throw their nets in. No, that's not what's going on here. It's just describing the situation. These guys are fishermen, so this is like the normal thing they do is they throw nets into the sea. And so elsewhere, Calvinists will take verses where uh, th- these people came to me because they are my sheep, uh, for they are my sheep. Well, well, what that means, and if we're using the rules that are laid out here with this prepositional phrase, it, it's not a metaphysical thing. It's not a metaphysical claim. It's just a description. This is the th- typical thing that these people do who self-identify as whatever category. And so we, we could draw parallels to how language works to defeat common Calvinist arguments because their arguments typically depend on very structured Uh, very inflexible readings of prepositions, for example, and very inconsistent standards for for that sake. But uh, Simon and Peter, they were throwing nets into the sea for they were fishermen. It's not like being a fisherman makes you metaphysically enable not to cast a net, not what's going on there. So it's good to grab verses like this and look at them in context to see what they're saying and use them as examples when Calvinists pull out their, their favorite proof texts. Just teach Calvinists how to read. This is, a, this is a literacy program. I should be getting some sort of uh, public service credit for this, teaching Calvinists to read. We got the Sermon of the Mount starting in Matthew 5. What I think is very interesting is in verse 16, it says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So your Father in heaven, their Father's throne is in heaven. These are reoccurring motifs again. This this is a pretty common phrase throughout uh, Jesus' works, that God has a throne in heaven. People visit God's throne throughout the Bible. In Isaiah, Isaiah is taken up to meet God on his throne. Daniel, there's a vision of God on his throne. God is on a throne in heaven, which means which means this this idea that God is pure actuality outside time and space that that's like a not not a thing in Jesus's mind. God can, if he wants, conceivably take human form. Remember when Yahweh appears to all sorts of people in the Old Testament, that could in fact be the Father God Yahweh. Remember the Semitics had idea possibly of divine fragmentation in which God could take various forms at various points of time in diverse locations at the same moment. 
God can take bodily form. And in this case, God can be on a throne in heaven. We'll, we'll encounter more of these statements as we go on. But to Jesus, you know, you lift your hands, you, you pray towards heaven, your father's in heaven, and he sees what you do. Scrolling down to the end of Matthew 5, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. This is a moral command suggesting Jesus believes people have free will. Uh, they, he, he gives them all sorts of commands of things to do. He's not a fatalist. He believes that people can respond. People can be persuaded. We read that throughout his works. Uh, he says later, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I want to uh, you know, hold you, but you were not willing. This entire appeal that Jesus has to the masses is an appeal to action. And a lot of times, a lot of people, it's lost on. We get parables of, of seeds going in different grounds and things not taking root. It's not going to work on everyone. And so it does work on some people. That's true. But people have free will. And sometimes, sometimes the enemy forces, the enemy cosmic forces intervene to stop it. But at the last phrase there, your father in heaven is perfect. So father in heaven, reoccurring theme as we see. And just a note, just a note, this, your father being in heaven contradicts all those little attributes that we talked about. Immutability, being outside of space and time, pure actuality, uh, being immutable, being impassable, not having relationships, not having, uh, if, if you want to say that he is, uh, what incommunicable he has these incommunicable attributes or he's ineffable you can't say anything positive about god all thing all these things are negated by father being in heaven by god the father being in heaven negates all these attributes jesus is an open theist he is not he is not a classical theist matthew 6 1 we see that phrase again your father in heaven going down to verse 6 4 uh we'll start at uh, 6 3 but when you do charitable deeds, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Remember the ancient Semites had an uh, idea that God could see. God could see everywhere on earth. You're not going to be able to hide from God. A lot of ancient religions didn't think that their God's omniscience uh, could go through walls, for example, or go through dark places. In Ezekiel, there's the famous instance where God brings Ezekiel to a hillside, gives him a magic door. He goes in and sees people worshiping all these idols, all these uh, different like rat creatures and stuff like that. And God says, they, these people don't think that I could see what they're doing, but I can see. I'm the God who can see into dark places. God gains knowledge through visual omniscience, right? And it's not going to be blocked by a hillside. And you could do these secret things in secret because Jesus is affirming you will be seen in secret. Jesus is an open theist. Scrolling down a little bit, Jesus starts talking about prayer. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in secret place. This is, this is New King James, but God sees in the secret places. And so, Pray to your father who is in the secret place. There's some italicized words that aren't in the Greek. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So God sees. God sees. Turning to verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things that you have need before you ask him. So this, this might indicate some sort of uh, foreknowledge, but... 
mechanism is always of question. How? How does God know? And up up above it says God knows because God sees in secret. God God knows you're praying because He sees you doing that, and He knows your needs before you ask. Is it is that a visual omniscience or is that the deductive based on knowing who you are and your circumstances in life? And then as Paul writes, Paul writes that the Spirit searches us and then communicates that information to God in Romans eight. Does Jesus have something like that in mind? That God knows us. Because he searches. God knows us because he is intimately familiar with who we are and what we need. That in that way, God knows what we need before we ask. It, it seems to be, it seems to be that Jesus is talking about a personal relationship with God. That God knows what he what we, each of us needs because he has a personal relationship with each of us. It's it's not based on a future crystal ball. It's not based on a a complete plan of all events to ever happen, meticulous predetermination. I think Jesus is here talking about God knows because God cares about us, God loves us, and he's intimately familiar with us and tries to anticipate what we need. Jesus gives a good example of prayer in which he confirms that uh, Calvinism is not true because God's will is not currently being done on earth. He says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, notice the language, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which suggests that God's will is not currently being done on earth. The prayer is for God to establish his kingdom and establish his will on earth. God's not meticulously determining everything. Everything that happens on earth is not God's divine plan that God wants from all eternity. The current state of the world is subverting God's will. And our prayer is for God to restore justice, to intervene, to act, to act and restore God's will. That's our prayer. Jesus tells us that's our prayer. Jesus ends this prayer by saying, But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That sounds discursive to me. That sounds like God is responding to events. So there, there's, there's a sequence of events that God sees us not forgiving, and then God in turn in response, does not forgive our trespasses because God thinks discursively. Jesus is an open theist. He doesn't think that God has an eternal set knowledge of all things from time eternal that's not discursive. It's it's all facts and figures at the front of your mind eternally. Remember, this is the classical view, ungenerated, uh, unrelational knowledge that doesn't come from outside of God. Instead, in Jesus's mind, God acts discursively. God looks at events, figures out events, and then responds accordingly. God's actions, God's thoughts are discursive. One thing leads to another. Jesus is an open theist. Scrolling down, we get another reiteration that God knows what we need before we ask. Uh, you know, it's just a affirmation that God is aware of our plights. God, God is tracking us on an individual level. Chapter 7, we're into the judge not. You know, this is a famously misused uh, passage. Judge not that you be not judged. Uh, New, New King James has a weird, weird English translation. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judged, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back on you. Presumably, God's doing the retribution judgment. God is looking at how we judge others and then using that as a guide to judge us. 
This is discursive. Jesus thinks God acts responsively. In response to us, God acts. This is God taking information from outside himself and using it to determine his actions in the world. This is open theism. Open theism. If God uses outside information to inform his own actions, open theism is true. Jesus is an open theist. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Oh, God responds to prayers. God responds to prayers. God thinks discursively. God takes information, takes suggestions, takes takes things from outside himself in order to discursively determine his uh, actions after that. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Huh. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. God is opening. God is responding. God answers prayers. Answering prayers is specifically an open theist idea. It doesn't it doesn't happen in a system in which God is eternally simple, immutable, and has a type of knowledge that's self-generated, not, not interacting with the outside world. God answers prayers. Open theism is true. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Remember, there's a lot of Calvinists that say, oh, your cancer, your cancer is from God. <laughs> that, that sounds like a serpent to me. Uh, that's not true. Everything we receive in life is, is, not, is not from God. That My son's cancer is not from God. God didn't give my son cancer. Or that would be a violation of the principle of justice and fairness and goodness that Jesus is putting down. God having goodness, a uh, sense of decency, and a sense of, uh, sense of giving people what, what they ought to get rather than bad things. That's an open theist concept as well, that God operates on a system that to us seems equitable, to us seems, seems good, right? Uh, we don't want a serpent. You don't hand me a snake. I, I was handed a snake once. I was at my friend's house, and uh, he, he raised like some snakes, and he had friends with snakes. And uh, this one guy, there was this old guy over, and he reaches in this bucket, and he pulls out this, this snake, and he hands it to me. So I'm just sitting there. I'm holding the snake, right? And he looks at me and he says, uh, that's a rattlesnake. So then, of course, I, I go all tense. I just, I freeze up. I'm just holding the snake in my hand. It's like, I don't want to, do, do you throw a rattlesnake? I don't know if you throw a rattlesnake or not. But uh, uh, so I'm just sitting there, just just frozen in kind of terror. And he looks at me. He's like, don't worry. It's devenomed. It's like, take your snake back. I, I don't, I don't want to be holding your snake. I don't want to be holding a rattlesnake. That's that's not something that I want to do. And so don't give your sons snakes, unless your son really likes snakes, but don't do not do those rattlesnakes. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, oh, oh what, what is this? Total depravity that no, no evil person can do any good thing, you know, and it's just uh, superfluous. Jesus doesn't have this idea, this Calvinistic idea. But even evil people have some standard of goodness. They, they know how to give good gifts to their children. And good gifts are not cancer. Uh, so you don't give cancer to your kids. How much more will your father who is in heaven, father in heaven, 
Give good things to those who ask him. God's better than evil people. God will give better things based on what we subjectively value, better things than evil people. Scrolling down to Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is Jesus's apocalyptic ministry. Uh, same thing that John the Baptist was preaching earlier. Now let's look at John 7, 23. This is the part where there's people who prophesy and cast out demons in the name of God, but God never knew them. Just look at how that language is used. I never knew you. So the no in this, this instance, uh, say that uh, it said, I always knew you. Calvinists would take this as a proof text from time eternal. God knew these people. But the knowledge being spoken of in this text is more of like an intimate familiarity. I don't know you because you're not my friend. Not that I don't know of your existence, but no is being used in a looser sense. So in, in English and any language, words have a wide range of meaning. So you have to kind of determine meaning by context. So uh, it's going to be very dangerous to just grab words and assign definite strong meanings to them and militantly claim that that's the only reading. Uh, that's bad theology. Hopefully, hopefully context is going to determine some sort of meaning to your words. So in this case, uh, people who prophesy in God's name are cast out and God says, I never knew you. I wasn't, I wasn't related to you. I didn't have intimate knowledge with you because you were not mine. You know, you, you were always an outsider. I never knew you. Chapter 8, Jesus is approached by a centurion who asked to heal his servant. And Jesus, when he hears it, he marvels. Remember, Jesus doesn't have the trait of omniscience. And a lot of Calvinists, some of them will claim that Jesus was omniscient, but their usual claim is, well, Jesus uh, took and put aside all his attributes and like omniscience and he put to the side, except for like if you're James White and you think it's convenient to have a certain passage be an assurance of Jesus's omniscience to prove Jesus is God, then you're going to claim that, yeah, that passage is a affirmation of Jesus's omniscience. But Jesus is not portrayed as omniscient, and not in Matthew, at least. In John, we get some sort of sense that he has a knowledge like a prophet would, where he could kind of see things remotely. He's able to locate someone under a tree remotely. Uh, that sort of stuff, we, we do find indication of that, but not complete knowledge of all things. And so Jesus, he finds in an individual who has a great faith, a Gentile, in fact, Gentiles are not God-fearers. Jesus, his ministry, of course, is to the lost sheep of Israel. And uh, he tells his disciples within Matthew not to go to the Gentiles. But uh, Jesus, he marvels when he hears that there's a Gentile of this faith. So he's, he's like, wow, this, this is a pretty crazy thing that I've discovered here. Verse 10, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus is acquiring information and evaluating things in real time. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is going to be a physical location in Jesus' eschatology. It's going to be a reformation of the world. The kingdom is going to be established on earth. And Gentiles, some Gentiles are going to enter the kingdom and have banquets in Jesus's description here with, with Israel. In chapter 9, we come across this instance in which Jesus heals a paralytic. And then uh, the scribes come out and they say, this man blasphemes. 
And then verse 4 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? So mechanism is always of interest. How did Jesus know their hearts? Was it reading their body language? Or was it because of his familiarity with this type of person? This is the type of thing that these scribes would do. And so he's preemptively uh, attacking them without them uh, outwardly verbalizing to Jesus their objections. So mechanism is of interest, and we probably should not default to eternal omniscience of all things, especially if the previous chapter has Jesus marveling about someone he just met. Probably not the omniscience explanation. Jesus calls Matthew in the middle of Matthew 9, and uh, this is pretty interesting in verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God wants to show mercy. This is what God wants. And not everyone, not everyone's going to get mercy because not everyone is going to repent and become a Yahweh worshiper, become a Christian. He says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is Jesus's ministry, his moral reformation. He's calling people to repentance, specifically sinners, people who are lost. It's not, I didn't. I only came for my certain uh, chosen elect, like in Calvinism, where Calvinism has people predestined from time eternal in order to, you know, uh, become Christians, become saved. Now, Jesus is coming for the sinners. He's not coming for the righteous. He wants people to repent. We get a sense of uh, the mission field down below in the end of chapter 9. Uh, the, the whole section is titled, The Harvest is Plentiful and the Laborers Few. And here's what Jesus said, says to his disciples. The harvest truly is plentiful. There's a, there's a lot of people that need reaching, but the laborers are few. Huh, there, there's a disproportionate amount of laborers for the number of people that need to be harvested. It, God is not determining all things. This is not God's will that the laborers are few. God's not controlling uh all the laborers and, and purposely thwarting himself by determining a, a select few laborers. Uh, nothing like that's happening. Jesus is lamenting the fact that there's not enough people for the amount of work that needs to be done. People can freely choose to become laborers. There's just not enough people who choose to exercise that option. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers unto his harvest. So he says, pray to God to recruit more laborers. They want God to rectify this situation. Uh, pray for God to respond and in, in response to recruit more people to harvest. It's interesting. They're not fatalists. They don't think the future is set. They don't think there's a certain select harvest from all eternity. They're not a Calvinist. In fact, they think that the lost can be reached and there's just not enough people to do it. And they think that God can change the future. God can respond to this situation if we only ask, because we can ask God and God will respond. We get to chapter 10 and we, we get a sense of what we already talked about where Jesus's ministry was to Israel. He tells his disciples, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans who are kind of like half Jew, half Gentile, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, this is their gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they, they got a specific mission field that he's sending them out to. So. This is his apocalyptic ministry. 
Scrolling down, we're at verse 29. We're talking about sparrows. It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? So what's the translation there? Is it uh, they're following, falling to the ground apart from the father's knowledge of your father's power? Uh, Matthew 10:29 in the ESV says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? It seems like it seems like in in the verse in the context this is talking about none of them none of these sparrows are going to die without God knowing. It says in verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now I don't got very many hairs, so it's probably not too hard to number my hairs, but it seems like this idea of visual omniscience that God is watching, God cares, God is God even cares for these sparrows, right? And God is counting our hair. God counts. Counting is discursive. Remember in Isaiah, that Isaiah debate I had with that individual, God counts the water. In Isaiah, God counts to know. This is this is his idea, Jesus, Jesus's idea of God's omniscience. It's a visual omniscience as we see over and over. We've got no sense of eternal ungenerated knowledge. We've got no sense of God being pure actuality outside of space and time. We got none of those indications. Jesus is an open theist. All the text screams it at us, and we 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 do best to to uh, take Jesus at His word. What Jesus says, verse thirty-two. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. There's that language again. Who is in heaven? So this is the idea that we have advocates. And uh, later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to talk about the little children. How little children have angels that advocate for those children in front of God that, uh, you know, try to persuade God to protect these children. And so Jesus is going to act like that for us if we confess him. There, Jesus is an advocate to God. So guess what that tells us? That God has discursive knowledge. God is in space and time. You know, God can be in space, can take form. God is in heaven. And per the, the models that we see throughout the Bible, we see in Job, we see in in 1 Kings 22, uh, the angels present themselves before God and converse with God. Jesus is going to uh, step up to God and confess us before God, advocate for us if we confess Jesus. There, there's discur- discursion going on. There's discussion going on between Jesus and the Father within Matthew. Jesus is an open theist. Look at this responsiveness. But whoever denies me before men... Him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You don't want you don't want to deny Jesus because he'll advocate against you. Uh, remember, there's a verse I don't know where it is offhand where yeah, it talks about uh, you know if if you're having a dispute with man that that's you know you have a third party advocate you have God to intercede. But if if your dispute's with God, then you have no intercessor. <laughs> you're out of luck and you're just going to have to take what you get because there's not a third party that could step in and intervene. But in Matthew, Jesus is that third party for us who can advocate to us or for us to God. Jesus is our advocate. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So if you identify with Jesus, you're identifying with God. Moving on to chapter 11, we, we get into a lot of uh, text by Jesus, a lot of different 
diverse and scattered teachings. And he says, he who has ears, let him hear. This is a common motif as well, that those who trust in Jesus, listen to his message, are said to have ears. Uh, and sometimes people are criticized by uh, the authors of the Bible for not having ears, like you, right, like in Isaiah, right? He makes fun of them. He mocks them as being deaf because they're not listening to his message. And so it seems to be idiomatic that uh, if you're listening and understanding, then you have ears. He's saying you who who are smart, uh, the people who understand things, let 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 hear hear what I'm saying. Receive my message. Listen to this. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. And so Jesus is saying that I'm reaching out to you. I'm trying to affect you. I'm trying to get you to change and do something and you're rejecting it. We are trying our best, our darndest. Remember in Isaiah 5, God says, what more could I have done for you that I did not do? But you you would not listen. People reject God. This is not what God wants. They are rejecting the will of God. Illustrating this point, we got this uh, text from the narrator, just a couple verses down. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They're not listening. God wants them to repent. Jesus wants them to repent. And they do not repent, and so they're rebuked. It's like we are trying, trying to reach you, and you're just not listening. This is the theme of the entire Bible, God's failed attempts at relationship with men. Every single interaction we see between God and man is God's attempts to reach a fallen man. Attempts which are resisted, attempts which are thwarted. And God fails in multiple ways, in multiple attempts to reach men. Jesus is just another attempt. Jesus is another attempt to reach men. Their crucifixion is another attempt to reach men. Skip into the next chapter. Here's an interesting thing. We, we talked a little bit about Jesus's omniscience or lack of omniscience within Matthew. And here's Jesus finding out about stuff. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Jesus learned something and responded to that. Jesus does not have omniscience in the book of Matthew. Verse 25 reiterates that Jesus is uh, dealing with the Pharisees in a separate instance. And the Pharisees heard it and said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Belzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought into desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And so this is Jesus' learning thoughts. Jesus is able to pick up on their thoughts and responds to their thoughts in real time. Jesus doesn't have omniscience, uh, but uh, he does seem to have body or mind-reading powers. He's able to uh, expertly understand what his critics are thinking. And it's a pretty good skill to have. And, and some people have this skill that they, you know, just read into the intents and motivations of their critics. It's not hard to do, I would say. We scroll down to 1236. Remember, a God who sees is a God who has moral prerogative and imperative to judge and listen to what jesus says but i say to you that every idle word men may speak they will give account of it in the day of judgment and so you you can't 
be forced to give an account of your words if God does not know your words. The implication here is there is a record. God is seen. There's some sort of recording or there's some sort of knowledge of every idle word you are saying. All right. Um, we go back to Petazoni. A God who judges is a God who knows. Skipping over to the next chapter. A lot of Jesus' parables are about the kingdom, what the kingdom's like, how the kingdom functions. Jesus' gospel was the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't preach quite a lot about himself, but he tells us a lot about how the kingdom works, how it operates. And listen to this. He's, he puts another parable forth, and he says in Matthew thirteen twenty four, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. You know, this is God, this is Jesus, this is the prophets, this is Jesus' disciples. But while the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. There, there's a spiritual war going on in which the enemy is subverting the works of God. You know, God's not controlling all things. God can be subverted, and there's a divine war for the souls of the people. This is a reoccurring theme as well in Jesus' work that sometimes... Sometimes it's Satan, sometimes it's the cosmic evil forces that are pulling away believers, uprooting them, or not letting those roots plant. There's an active enemy subverting God's will. God's not controlling all things. This is, this is not a Calvinistic idea. Jesus is not a Calvinist. Scrolling down, this is uh, another account, just kind of reiterating the exact same stuff. This is Jesus talking again. He says, The filled is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. The angels are going to gather up all the wicked, put them to death, and all the righteous are going to shine forth, are going to be blessed. This is Jesus' eschatology, the coming kingdom of God, a restoration of the earth, and a restoration of judgment on earth. And there's an active enemy trying to subvert that. This is the devil ripping up what God attempts to plant, ripping up God's harvest. Scrolling down and just reinforcing the same message. So it will be at the end of the age that the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Just reiterating what we've talked about already. This is Jesus's ministry. This is Jesus's gospel. This was preached first by John the Baptist. And uh, as we covered before, all right, we're about halfway through Matthew, and we, we've already filled up the, enough content for a full podcast. I will be doing a second part to Matthew, just that this is taking a lot of time, because there's, there's quite a lot of stuff. Just when you're reading the Bible, try to think, what does the author believe about God? What you know? Anytime there's a statement about God, about the Father, think, what state of mind does that author, does that speaker have to be in to make that statement about God? If God is in heaven, what does that mean? Does that do we just read past it? It doesn't have any real meaning. It just means, oh, God's in a eternal now outside of space and time. Or does that mean, you know, maybe Jesus says that God is on the throne in heaven. You know, in Revelation, Jesus stands next to God. God's on the throne, and then the Lamb appears, and they just kind of hang out together. Right? Can can God take a physical form in heaven? Is that a thing God the Father can do? Or or is classical theism true where the father is on a different plane of reality and uh, the Platonistic uh, hypostasis is, is the real truth about the universe where 
God the Father is eternal, absolute, simple, on a higher plane. And uh, Jesus is just a personification, a hypostasis in the lower realms in the material world, a representation of the simple, partless God. Jesus is a representation of him in a lower plane of existence. That's the Gnostic idea, I would say. That, that is the Neoplatonist idea of how the world would work, these different levels of hypostasis. Or, or counter to this, we might have Jesus' idea of the Semitic kind, where God might have divine fragmentation in mind, where God can take bodily form, God can inhabit the world, God can inhabit heaven, uh, heaven and earth, uh, the earth is his footstool, heaven is his throne. This type of language is uh, ubiquitous in the Bible. I don't think I don't think they have these Platonistic ideas of pure actuality, simplicity, outside space and time, immutability, impassibility. I'm not picking up any of these things from anything Jesus says about God, about the coming kingdom, about theology. Jesus is just not a Neoplatonist. Jesus is not uh, a Platonistic philosopher. Jesus is a Semite, uh, ancient. Hebrew, uh, specifically an Israelite who has Israelite theology and adopts, adopts and believes everything that we learned about God throughout the entire Bible. This is the God of the Bible, a God who can do, a God who can act, a God who can answer prayers, a God who continually is frustrated by the continued defiance of his creation. He is constantly wearied you know he keeps trying and attempting to reach his people but it keeps failing but we're at the halfway point so we're gonna cut off here at uh, chapter 14 and we'll pick that this up again and cover the rest of matthew but from our evidence so far no indication no indication that jesus accepts any of these platonistic attributes and every indication every indication to suggest that jesus is an open theist God responds to prayers. God is relational. God is discursive in his relationship with others, in his internal thought process. Jesus can advocate for us in front of God. In Jesus' theology, Jesus is an open theist. Thank you for listening. 